I want to ask this question. Do, do you know Jesus? Simple enough. Do you know Jesus? Uh, do, do you know him? I know you know about him. I know you know things about Jesus. You know he existed. You know he died. Yeah, you know you know plenty of things about him. But so does Satan. So so do all his angels. So do lots of people in this world who don't have a relationship with God in Christ. You can find out in this life, you can find out virtually all there is to know about Jesus in terms of the facts of his life and even doctrines surrounding him. You can know all that but not know him. So when I say to you know him, what I mean is, are you in a close relationship with him? That's the thing. Do you count him as a friend? Do you think of him as your brother? Well, everything I'm about to say today is based on the assumption that you know Jesus in that way. Paul knew him. But it's clear from what we read, Paul wanted to know him more. So last time, two weeks ago, we looked at this righteousness, this perfection of God's character which is given to his people. And we said, in this way, through that process, God could pronounce us innocent, innocent of all charges. So all the wicked things that we have done, which have caused God to be disappointed and angry, have been paid by Jesus Christ, paid for by him. And because of that, we are credited with being as virtuous as Jesus himself. We are credited with the same righteousness. And Paul had it. We read, Paul had this righteousness from above, but he wanted to become more acquainted with it. In other words, he wanted his life to reflect the reality that was in him. He's got this exalted status as a, a, a ruler with Jesus Christ. He's got this exalted status in the eyes of God and he wants to know Jesus more so that he could, he just wants to be closer to him. And we're gonna to focus today on verses 10 and 11 where it starts. All this stuff, so that and I know him, and this, and this, and this, and attain the resurrection, it says at the end. So we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna break it down like this. We're going to look at the trust we should have in the power, the power of Christ. And we're gonna look at in what ways we might share in his sufferings and and, and we remind ourselves of the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, 
to be partakers of the great resurrection of the body at the last day. So here is the, here's the first point then. The first point is that we, we trust in the resurrection power of Christ. And Paul says, Paul says, so that's verse 10, I might know him and the power of his resurrection. What is this power exactly? It's the power by which Jesus was raised from the grave. I mean, what manner of power must this have been to accomplish such a thing? It was a power which could rouse this Jesus of Nazareth, who everyone thought was gone forever, roused him from death itself. It was a power which brought him back into the land of the living to walk around in this glorious new body. It was a power which then was able to translate that saviour into another realm altogether, into heaven itself. And it was a power which reinvested the sun with those holy garments and that crown that he had set aside to carry out his mission on earth. Paul wants to be reinvigorated day by day with this same power from heaven. And he did know this power. He not only knew Christ the person in his head, he not only knew Christ the person, he knew Christ the power. And here's the difference. And that's the power, friends, that got Paul through each day as, if you like, an employee in the great workforce of God on this earth. Peter knew this too. Um, Peter knew this too, and he wrote uh, to the church. If you want to, if you want to look this up, it's on page one two two four, and it's in um, Second Peter, chapter one, verse three. It says, "His divine power has granted to us all things." that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. That's a big sentence, but not only does Peter tell the believers, tell us, we're given divine power to live for Christ. He makes the point, it comes through knowledge of Christ. Proper knowledge. That's how it comes you need to know Christ before you can know his power. I've spoken to all of you and everyone here today, you all claim to be Christians. It means you claim to know Christ. And if you know him, you've already experienced that power in your lives. You've already had the divine power working in you to some degree. Now, I'm not asking you if you feel powerful you know, I mean, the last time I felt powerful was about 30 years ago. We're not talking about this. We're, we're talking about a power which sustains you in your daily relationship with God. And you believers, you, you should be confident that God will sustain you every day for the rest of your lives. It's a promise. But Paul sets us an example of wanting more. 
He wants us to experience more of this power. Why? Why, Why would he do that? What benefit is, in, is there in having more of this power from on high? This power of the resurrected Christ. Simply this. The more power we have, the more we'll accomplish for our King. When we're weary, his power can enable us to carry on, carry on serving him. When temptation comes, his power can enable us to put up more of a fight than we have done. And when we feel frightened about, like I said, praying in front of people or witnessing to people, when we feel, when we feel frightened, his power can enable us to be that bit more courageous. There are many benefits, there are, but how do you and I access this power? Or, you know, well, to be more precise, how do we get more of it if we have a little bit? How do we get more of this? Well, it's back to that ancient formula, prayer and obedience. Whoever you think are the greatest figures in the history of the church, all of the, all of the big wigs, all of the big names, I can guarantee you this one thing, and I don't know them personally, I guarantee you, every single one of them was a man or woman of prayer and took obedience to God seriously. Every one of them. Prayer friends, God really does want to hear you. Those awkward silences in your prayers, those mumbling words, those times when you can't find the right words, doesn't matter. God loves to hear you. God wants you to speak to him more and more. And we're to ask for this power from on high. That's what we're asking for. That's what I'm encouraging you to ask for today. For more power from on high. And, and he tells us in his word as well, so that's prayer, but he tells us in his word that it's, it's important for us to do what he says. It's important. And the more we pray and the more we obey, the more power he'll entrust us with. I, I gave this, I gave this sermon a title, The Apprentice, and I know there's a programme of that name, isn't there, on the telly? Now, thankfully, I mean, I haven't watched this. I won't comment on it, but uh, it sounds rubbish to me, but some people, are, some people think it's fantastic, The Apprentice. Were any of you apprentices? I suspect these guys at the front were. Apprentice, were you ever an apprentice? Was Bill an apprentice? No. <laughs> Forgot. <laughs> Left such a bad impression on Bill that he's. So um, apprentices, yet. Yeah. So I, I've never, I've never been on an apprenticeship, but. Um, how I hear they were structured is that you, you, you've got smaller jobs at the start, right? So some fellas say, you know, I, I only ever made tea for the first year of my apprenticeship. And so you were given jobs that were a little bit less important, jobs which carried less responsibility, jobs which, if you messed them up, you wouldn't blow the factory up. That, that's the point, isn't it? 
But if you did those things uh, competently, the small things, you'd be entrusted with more responsibility. And then at the end of it, you come out a qualified engineer or sheet metal worker. Sheet metal, sheet metal worker. <laughs> and so you see, gone from making tea to being an expert in sheet metal work. Um, so we might say that the, 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 the Christian is serving a type of apprenticeship, but it's a lifelong one. And friends, unfortunately, will never, ever, ever be fully qualified in this life. But still, as we go through, we learn the habits of prayer and obedience. And we can receive power from God to do greater and greater things. Maybe he'll give us more responsibility. I do, I do, I've often wondered, perhaps you have as a Christian, I've often wondered what would it be like to be someone completely sold out for God? What, what would that be like? Plenty of other believers I know have, have, have um, thought the same thing about themselves. There's a preacher from years ago called Dwight Moody, and he once said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Dwight Moody said that he aimed to be that man. Well, as much as that was a noble and godly thought, the harsh reality is there never has been such a man, there never has been such a woman in all of history who's been completely sold out for God. I imagine this, uh, I imagine Moody on his uh, deathbed just lamenting the fact that he hadn't been that person. He hadn't been that person in prayer or in holiness or in zeal. But friends, here's the thing, we're to try. I've just said that almost that this is impossible. We're to try. We're to try like math for these things. We're to make it our life's number one goal to become this perfectly consecrated, dedicated servant of the Most High. And we should never hold back in any way because of thoughts of this thing being impossible to attain. In one of, in one of his letters uh, to the church at Corinth, Paul said, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The more we draw on the resurrected power of Christ, the more we'll be like our Saviour. Here's my next point. It's that we partake in the sufferings of Christ. We partake in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says, verse 10, he wanted to share his sufferings. Share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. We've just seen how knowing Jesus in a proper sense gives us access to this great power. 
but it also means sharing in his sufferings. What does this mean? The one who's become a servant to the Lord will suffer in this life. Now it could be very minor, it could be it could be when your family find out that you are a Christian, they start to sideline you. They, you maybe don't get invited to certain family gatherings that you would expect to be invited to. And it might cause you some upset, you know, you might feel, I don't know, you might just feel ostracised, uh, even if it's only sometimes. Uh, it could be uh, that, um, uh, remember one of our twins put a, a gospel leaflet through someone's door and the adult came out and, and ripped it up and threw it in a bin, you know, it, it made sure she saw it, you know, and she's only like, she was only 14 or something. And so, you know, that's, it saddens you, it saddens her, it saddens me, that, that people hate God so much, and you might even feel a bit intimidated by the hostility. <clears throat> Let's be honest, friends. Let's be honest, those things are not hardships. It is still persecution, but, you know, you survive. At the other end of the spectrum, there are severe persecutions. People have been tortured and shot and drowned and killed in all manner of ways, refusing to disown Jesus. And I would warn you again, it is a dangerous cowardice that thinks that if you deny Jesus to save your own skin, that you've done something good. Uh, that's, that's not the case at all. Um, a true believer, what a true believer would do is, is never deny Christ, even if they end up dying for it. That's a, a, I realise that's a hard thing to say. But, uh, <clears throat> we don't want Jesus to be ashamed of us at the judgment, so we shouldn't be ashamed of him here. So I've said there's some minor persecutions and there's some extreme ones and all of us, if you are serving to God, all of you will suffer different types of minor persecution. Very few of you will suffer the big stuff in this country at this time. Very few will go through that. The language, <clears throat> the language the Bible uses to describe our sufferings as believers is sometimes a bit curious. Sometimes it's very clear. So, okay, Jesus suffered for his devotion to God. We suffer for our devotion to God. So, we're suffering like Jesus suffered. So there's one thing. Another aspect of this is to do with our witness. Our willingness to, to suffer persecution is... Um, our, sorry, our, our willingness to suffer persecution is itself a witness. It's a powerful witness. And so when we are the objects of the world's hostility and then we react with grace, the world notices, friends, the world notices. It amounts to a very powerful testimony. And in fact, people are being converted simply through witnessing the grace shown 
by Christians during persecution. Paul, elsewhere, the Apostle here, he speaks, he speaks like we're doing Jesus Christ a service when we suffer. <laughs> he even says we suffer on behalf of Christ. There's a couple of ways we, we, we suffer with him, and those are clear. But there's another aspect of our suffering to do with fellowship with Christ. When we suffer for the sake of the gospel, it somehow deepens our fellowship with our Saviour. I said to you before, in a couple of weeks, Karen and I are travelling up to Northumberland for a few days, and I plugged this into Google Maps and it told me I needed to go across and then up. I thought, no, I want to see Hadrian's Wall. I haven't been there since I was a kid, so I'm going to go up and then across and try to, you know, bump into the wall. Not, not literally. And t take in those things. And I read an illustration about uh, by um, Spurgeon. And he, uh, you know, he probably stole it. Uh, we, we all steal stuff. And, and it was about those Roman walls, the, like Hadrian's Wall. And the Romans had, had made some way of making the, you know, the mortar between the bricks. They've made it, and it goes, when it goes off, when it hardens, it goes very, very, very hard. In fact, it becomes almost as hard as the brick. And... Well, it, it was just like we were all one thing. And so the, the comparison was made to the Christian. Where to become as solid as Christ. And we become more and more like him. We're to be so much in him. And he's to be so much in us. That the reality of our union together becomes clear. So as we suffer for his sake, our union with him, that bond becomes more real. The Apostle Paul wasn't some sort of masochist, so don't think, you know, oh, he, loved, he loved the old persecution, yeah. yeah no, he didn't. Uh, he didn't relish suffering at all. He just knew it was to be expected. And we should expect it. I don't expect anyone will want to avoid all persecution at any cost. But if you force me to give advice on how to avoid it, I can give it to you. Um, the number one best way is to not witness to other people about Jesus. That's, a, that's, a, that's the main culprit. So if you can just leave out all that witness inside of your, your duty, then you can avoid almost all persecution. So just don't witness to people. Uh, avoid telling them about sin. Don't mention judgment. Just say you go to church or something mild and meaningless like that. And and uh, don't 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 speak God's truth to them. If if one of my so if one of my relatives said, uh, Paul, I need to tell you, our oh, Michael is now gay, right? Uh, but God accepts us just as we are, doesn't He? Right. If I wanted to avoid stick, I would go. Yeah, yeah, he loves us exactly as we are, right? Instead of saying, well, 
Well, he didn't, well, he didn't accept me the way I was. You know, I have to repent. You know, Michael has to repent. You have to repent. That's what I should say. But no, if you're trying to avoid persecution, you just agree with them. Just go along with it. Just nod and allow them their delusion. You can show your face in church. You know, not, don't, don't, go, don't go too mad. You know, don't be here all the time. You know, we don't want people to think you're a zealot or an extremist. Well, yes, friends, I'm being facetious, aren't I? I'm being a bit silly. I'd never advise anyone to neglect their duty just so they can avoid persecution. Because if you're just a church scholar and there's very little evidence that you're constantly looking to serve Jesus Christ, I'm scared. I'm scared for you. There are dreadful warnings in Scripture for those who hide their faith. If your main concern is just not looking stupid in front of the people you know, that's okay. Avoid looking stupid. Jesus will just disown you at the judgment. Let's try and turn this around. Eh? Let's try and turn this around and be a bit more positive because I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in your service for God. And there's a joy. There's a joy in serving Jesus in all the different forms. And I can say that uh, those few times when I, I can say I've really served Jesus, they've been the happiest times of my life. So, there's a joy in serving Jesus. Some of you may remember Paul. Paul got battered one day. And he said... Oh, I, I can't do. So he's there, you know, all covered in blood and all like mangled, and he and he said, "Oh, I, I can't do all joy to suffer with Christ." I wish I, I just hope I could do that if I was in his position. There's a joy there. Persecution is not pleasant. No trial is pleasant. But it can be accompanied by a Holy Spirit joy which overrides the bitterness of the suffering. Let me try and encourage you with this one, just one thing. Every time you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, you become more like Him. And you draw closer to Him. And you delight in Him. Well, we've looked at this resurrection power. We've looked at the sufferings. The sufferings which make us like Jesus. And I just want to say a few words about how we share in the death of Christ. So my next heading, how we share in the death of Christ. Well, just as Jesus' um, sufferings culminated in his death, there's a way in which we follow him there too. Did you hear that? Just as he died, there's a way in which we follow him there. Paul says he wants to be like Jesus in his death. Some of the stuff we just said about suffering applies to Jesus' death too, but I need to make it clear, friends. We've come here to a great mystery of God. One of the mysteries of God we have a living faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we, have, um, we have a connection with him. We have faith in him, but it's more than that. We, uh, we belong to him, but it's more than that even. 
become one with Jesus in a way that it's not possible to fully explain. So this isn't easy stuff. I'm going to try and be clear with what I do understand. So like when we were talking about suffering being like Jesus' sufferings, I want to think about some of the ways we can be like Christ in his death. If you want to have a look in Romans chapter 6, which is on page 1136, page 1136, we'd be in Romans chapter 6 and verses 6 to 8. It says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. When Jesus Christ suffered on the cross, uh, he took all the responsibility for all the rottenness and the vileness and all the sin that I've had committed. He took that, he took responsibility. So when I was converted, which was about 30 years ago, according to this, my old self was crucified with Christ. The old Paul Forrest died. Uh, I, I look, after my conversion, I looked the same, same accent, roughly the same character, and yet it says that the, the old guy died. Now, friends, I know quite well I didn't die on the cross. It's not saying that, not in a physical way anyway. But the Bible does use that language, so we we follow it, we we believe it. It encourages us to think of our old selves as being killed off, killed off, and our new selves being brand new creations in Christ. So we could say we're, we're like Christ in his death when we're converted. And the, the verse that I, I just read said one of the results of this is that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're set free from sin. We can live this spiritual life with Christ as our constant companion. Now as, as we live this life of obedience to him, we mirror his life of obedience. His utter commitment to his mission was to lead to his death. And that did not stop him. And if we can serve God fearlessly and enthusiastically, not caring if we suffer and even die as martyrs for his name, we copy the obedience of Christ and in this way we also become like him in his death. When we live this consecrated life that I'm speaking of, we'll die physically. 
There's a morning coming when we'll wake up from our beds for the last time, and we won't know it. We'll eat our breakfast as normal, and not know it's the last breakfast we'll ever eat. But as we take our final breaths, I hope we're all able to think on Christ, to, to understand the life of joyful service mixed with sufferings is coming to its end just like Christ did. As he died, so we die. So even in the final act of our lives, that play, that divine play that we find ourselves in, we can even become like Christ in his death. As promised, my last point is that we should look forward to our resurrection. What a great note to end on. We look forward to our resurrection. There's all kinds of different views about what happens when we die. I know, I've spoken to some of you, and, and there's maybe three, four, five different understandings of what happens when we die. Well, I want to encourage you with this. It, it doesn't matter that much. If you're a believer, you're going to live with God forever, right? So is that not good enough? So let's crack on and have a look at this issue of death. So the people who know Christ also were granted the power to live this victorious life. And then if we obey Christ, we'll, we'll, we'll suffer, I said. And we're all going to die as Jesus died. And this is the destiny of us all. No matter how you choose to go, it's, we could say we're all going, going in the grave. What's it like? Here's some, um, here's some ideas from the Old Testament, what, what this is like, the, the grave. It's, uh, the psalmist says to us that when we're dead, we can't praise the Lord. King David said, in death, we can't even think on God. Psalm 146 says, in that very day, our thoughts perish. Solomon says, Whatever our hands find to do, we should do it with all our might, because when we're dead, there's no work, no thoughts, no knowledge, no wisdom. And Job says, a man lies down in death and rises not again. Until the end of the world comes, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. So if you only knew that, you would think your future was very grim. If you only knew those scriptures. Now Paul knew them all, he knew every one of them. He knew that every one of the people around him and every one of us, by the way, we must taste the bitterness of death that is a consequence of the fall and we will all taste the bitterness of death. But part of the power which raised Christ from the dead will be employed to raise us from the dead. Verse 11 says in our reading, the resurrection from the dead Paul was aware of all the scriptures that gave him such great hope. Uh, one of the clearest is found in Daniel. Daniel and chapter 12 and verse 2. If you want to read it for yourself, it's on page 907. So Daniel 12 and 2 says, Those who sleep in the dust of the earth, so us when, when we're gone, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some 
to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So at the end of time, all the people who ever lived on planet Earth will be awakened. All those who didn't receive the saving grace of God in their lives will be doomed. There'll be a great multitude of them from all eras, all countries, all religions and languages. Friends, it will include all those people we know personally who have so often rejected the faith that we have. All of them will be publicly shamed and they'll be consigned to that place that God has appointed for rebel people. But those who during their lives were grafted into the family of God and became his children will enjoy a glorious res resurrection. That's what Daniel's telling us. So further on in this chapter in Philippians, it says God will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Jesus himself spoke about this in John 6. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus promises all who come to him in faith and receive forgiveness of sins will be, will be raised up on that last day. He says on that last day, I will make them alive. That's what he says. And this was Paul's great hope. The resurrection was Paul's greatest hope. See how he describes it in verse 11. It's strong language. He says, he's saying to us, I want more of this heavenly power so that I can live this life-saving God suffering like he suffered so that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Would, would, would that be your answer, friends? What would you say? Would you say, imagine I grab a clipboard and I did a survey of Christians in different churches and I, I asked them what their greatest hope was. What do you think they'd say? What would you say? It's quite surprising, really. But I doubt, just to experience, I doubt anyone would say what Paul said. So, perhaps I can encourage you to use the language that we're supposed to use, the language of the Scriptures. So, often we inherit phrases and we use them. And then the next generation hear them and, and, they, and they perpetuate them for centuries, these phrases. And so, if I did my survey and I said, um, what's your greatest hope here? And they'd say things like, I want to obey God so that by any means possible, I may attain being carried off by the angels to heaven when I die. That's the type of thing they'd say. Or they might say, if by any means possible, I might attain going through the pearly gates and walking into that mansion. Okay? So that's the type of language that people would use. So the question is, where did they get it from? He certainly didn't get this from Paul. I mean, just read everything Paul said. You won't read a single phrase that's anything like that anywhere in the Bible, really. Paul's hope that one day he would be made alive according to the promise of God. He'd be brought back from the dead. That's a big deal, friends. And he shares his excitement with the believers in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, 
We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies, our tabernacles. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus will return. There will be great activity. There will be great noise. All those who belong to God will be made alive together on the great and glorious day. It's hard to imagine a scene, friends, but go ahead and try. Go ahead and enjoy yourself. This is our great hope. The resurrection is what it's always been about, friends. This is what it was always leading to. This is the future the saints of all dreamt of, and this should be our dream today, the resurrection. Is this your hope, friends? That's my question. Do you have confidence in the promises of Daniel and of Paul? Do you have confidence? If you do, I would encourage you to keep going. Keep at it. Keep going. Strive for perfection in all things pertaining to God. Let no amount of work or struggle or inconvenience or suffering be too much as you head towards that great goal. Paul knew he wasn't perfect, but he was determined to do his absolute best. From verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Keep going, friends. Keep going, aiming for that great goal so that you can say with the apostle, you can say to the apostle that I want to work my socks off so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Amen.